0: What is the difference between a unit test, an integration test, and a system test? Those terms mean different things to different people. So instead of answering them myself and giving you just my perspective, I thought it'd be fun to invite a guest on the show and help me discuss it. Today we have Mahmoud Hashemi to help me answer this question and also catch up on what he's been doing lately. We also talk about test-driven development and a lot of philosophy about testing. Today's episode is sponsored by Talk Python Courses, nerd lettering, and test and code Patreon supporters. The courses at TalkPython are at training.talkpython.fm. The Python for Entrepreneurs course is still in early bird pricing and includes a $50 credit from DigitalOcean and a three-month license to PyCharm Professional Edition. He just put up a new course called Consuming HTTP Services in Python, which looks fun. I'll have to check that out. And I always recommend that everyone coming from different languages that think they know Python but aren't quite writing code that looks like Python to take the right Pythonic code like a seasoned developer. So that's training.talkpython.fm. Thanks, Michael. Do you love Python? Show it with some Python swag. I've been sent a beautiful black coffee mug that says, Python, it's good for you. From the folks at Nerd Lettering. That's nerdlettering.com. I've also got the same design as a mousepad. There are a few other designs, including some gorgeous lettering for the Ladies Unite. And there's a new design they just put up that says Pythonista. I think I'm going to have to get that one too. Start a collection at work. Nerd lettering is done by Dan and Anja. If you also listen to Python Bytes, you've heard us mention a couple of Dan Bader's Python articles. That's the same Dan. So... Get some custom made mugs and accessories for Pythonistas by Pythonistas. Check out nerdlettering.com and use promo code testcode all one word to get fifteen percent off. The last thank you needs to go to test and code Patreon supporters. That's at patreon.com slash testpodcast. At just a buck per month or per episode, you can prod me into making more episodes. Welcome to Test and Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. Today, I've got Mahmoud Hashemi. Mahmoud, I think I got that right. Yeah, it's close. Close (laughs) enough. Yeah. And, you know, we've never talked before, but I kind of feel like I know you already. I think because you've been on TalkPython a couple times, and You've been a supporter for what I'm doing on testing code for a while too, and I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I've been there since the beginning. At least as, as soon as I, like, you know, sort of clicked that it existed, I, I went on Patreon and uh, you know did my part.
0: And uh, you know, I appreciate it. And the, just the encouragement is kind of cool. The encouragement I get from people all over—it's incredible. Yeah, but we're not here to talk about me. Everybody knows about me. <laughs> The, t- the tireless
1: publisher that you are, it's true.
0: <laughs> tireless, yeah, about once a month, maybe. So, if people are not familiar with who you are, tell me about you.
1: Sure, yeah, like you said, my name is Matthew Muthashemi, I'm a... Developer, uh, primarily specializing in Python I'm probably best known for my work at PayPal on the Python infrastructure there, but you know I do a lot of other things where uh, you know I volunteer for Wikipedia in terms of developing code in the periphery using Wikipedia apis and uh, I'm involved in various types of open source and education. I have an O'Reilly course called Enterprise Software with Python based on my experiences at PayPal. And uh, yeah, I sort of like to keep really busy with software.
0: So how long have you been at PayPal?
1: So let's see, I was continuously employed at PayPal from 2008 until just recently. I'm still writing up the, the full like account, I guess, but, because it is so long. But uh, yeah, me and my team actually uh, moved kind of wholesale to a, uh, another company. And we do kind of the same thing we did at PayPal, but for them... As uh, the first principal engineers at a company called Shopkick, it's a little bit less famous than PayPal, but it's a decent-sized company, forty engineers or so, and uh, we're happy to be sort of tech leaders there
0: now. Okay, have you announced this, and I just missed it, or no? See, that's
1: the thing is that uh, yeah, this has been it's been very busy lately. Basically, what happened was. You know, I sort of wrapped up things at PayPal. I like, you know, did some capstone projects for myself. Wrote, wrote a bunch of blog posts. What do you call it? I I did the O'Reilly course and open sourced some stuff. And once it was all like said and done, you know, I had actually met these folks at a conference. They'd read the blog posts. They had seen what we had open sourced, and they really wanted uh, to have that sort of uh, architecture at their company. And they made a pretty good offer for the whole team. So, you know, I decided to move over.
0: That's. And- <laughs> <laughs> kind of incredible. How many people moved over?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's just a it's just a few of us right now. Uh, okay, you know we're still working on let's see consolidating the team, if you would. But it's a little bit it's a little bit complicated, I guess. How
0: exciting! Yeah, but so is it, does this mean a move for you, or are you? Uh-
1: no, it's still in the Bay Area. You know, okay. it's, it's all still in the same locale. I guess the the thing is that like I did take a bit of time off between the jobs to sort of like write it up and announce it and do it right, and then I got sucked into this thing called Wiki Loves Monuments, which is a it's the largest photography competition in the world, and uh, they were really lacking in tooling and weren't sure how they were going to. Uh, managed to judge this giant competition with the new team that was running it. And so we sort of, uh, me and a few other volunteers, got together and developed a new judging platform for them, which was a really, really fun project. And it was on a deadline, so that made it all the more fun. And uh, so, but that did really take away my time to sort of like write up an announcement on this. And I'm just getting back to it as we speak. So yeah, that's what I'm up to these days.
0: I was just actually down uh, in San Jose last weekend.
1: Oh, wow. You should so.
0: stop by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess I missed the uh, the big torrential rainstorm.
1: That's true. It is a it's, it's a rainy one right now. Not usual.
0: Yeah, I was in uh, Los Gatos. I'd never been there before. It was kind of a fun trip. Mm-hmm. I want to start with something light. Sure. Hat note is a thing that you do.
1: Oh yeah. So hat note is sort of the imprint that I created for all of these Wikipedia projects that we're constantly putting together, it just sort of made sense to have there be a destination for it and have there be an organization so that if other people wanted to join up and maybe put on the resume, they could. At this point, okay. I think we have uh, effectively like six pseudo-staff. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just people with different specializations who have developed different software projects that maintain it under this umbrella. And we provide like hosting and this sort of stuff. It's... You know, I, I run it like an organization, but it's it's really quite loose.
0: And then there's like this um, this uh, listen to Wikipedia thing.
1: Yeah, so listen to Wikipedia is probably our most popular project. It's been on ah. NPR and BBC and French television and all over the place. It's it sort of took off. And I think that'll probably stay my most popular project for a while. <laughs> it's going to take a bit to outdo myself there.
0: I always get it wrong when I try to tell people about it. So what's the like the quick elevator pitch of, like, what is it? Is playing music based on something? Sure.
1: So, I mean, originally, uh, the catchiest thing I, description I came up for was that it was sort of like a, a wind chime for the Internet, or specifically Wikipedia. But it was uh, sort of inspired by a project that we saw by a guy named Maximilian, and what it does is for every... Wikipedia edit that happens, it creates a visualization and sonification in real time. So you can listen to other people edit Wikipedia. It ends up being a really nice writing tool. I mean, you were just talking about being so busy with writing. And that's definitely something I've experienced. And one aspect about this that I like is that, you know, whereas writing is normally a pretty lonely activity, I mean, I'm way more productive when I have a quiet room to myself, but at the same time, I like to know that there are other people out there who are doing that, and this really brings that to life. Every mm-hmm. So
0: each note is somebody clicking publish or something?
1: Right. So every tone that you hear, which is either a string pluck for a net removal or a bell for a net addition, every sound that you hear is somebody editing an article on Wikipedia. And okay. So it averages uh, for English Wikipedia between sixty and one hundred and sixty edits per minute.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, it's it's very pleasant to listen to. Yeah. I like it. That's sort of what we're aiming for. Yeah. And um, I can't think of anything useful about it other than being interesting.
1: Sure. So I can tell you a use or two that's come up. So for other Wikipedias, besides English Wikipedia, the edit velocity is much lower. It's not 60 to 160 per minute. And so it sort of acts as a kind of uh, notification service for things that may need review on quieter wikipedias of other oh. languages yeah okay. so that's people interesting. Have find uses for if people find uses for these things we sort of like theorized but we didn't expect it to take off this much people use it for yoga classes and yeah it's really taking on life its own
0: i like the idea of playing it while i'm writing just to know that there's other people out there trying to produce content for the world that's pretty cool yeah exactly so i like it so one of the things that came up that I, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on mm-hmm. and because you volunteered mm-hmm. was like a long time ago maybe 3 or 4 months ago mm-hmm. I had a question that I've I've been reluctant to answer and the question was that basically could I cover the different levels of testing like uh, unit testing and system testing what did all those things mean and instead of trying to answer that myself I thought I'd bring somebody on to help, and you said you would. So sure,
1: sure. So uh, <laughs> I mean, hopefully, it's going to be a group project. I think yeah. that having listened to your past podcasts, uh, your past episodes, I think that we may have slightly like skewed views on this sort of thing. But I think we're kind of a, of the same mind in a way. But anyways, so I think the usual test levels that people describe are unit tests and integration tests and regression tests and uh, functional tests and system tests. And uh, I kind of go over these in my O'Reilly course, but I give it a pretty light touch. I'm not very, you know, as they would say, religious about what these definitions are. So for one, it's like, what is a unit? There's all sorts of different like levels of units really. And it kind of varies by your abstraction.
0: Let's just start there. For you, what do you when you're thinking of your code, what do you think of as a unit? What do you think of as a unit test?
1: If I'm back in school and I want to get a good grade on the test, uh, right, I'm gonna say a unit test is a test that focuses on a public class or a public static function, right? Some aspect of a public API just writes the test just for that. That is what gets tested in a unit test.
0: If that function mm-hmm. calls some other function in a different library or a different class, are those part of the unit test? No, they shouldn't be, and that's
1: where mocks come in. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm sure okay. you had a lot of fun discussions uh, on the podcast about those.
0: So, do you do that? Do you practice uh, tight unit testing and mocking?
1: Yes, and no. So, historically, not so much, right? Like, if we're. In my own libraries, yes, I do unit tests at the function level because that's what makes sense. However, I'm a big fan of consistency, right? And if there are conventions that exist in an organization or a team, then it's really important to maintain those unless you have a meeting of the minds and decide to go a different direction. So our current organization, they uh, have a long history of doing unit tests. So yes, we do unit tests now. And the way that we uh, achieve that is that mocks are injected they're passed in as opposed to being sort of changed or monkey patched okay. at the module level. So they have a pretty good uh, rigorous like and practice that they followed for many years and it's like okay this is something you can do and we'll do it too. Now that said we're trying to inspire a lot more around integration testing. So basically right now most things have nothing but unit tests and then there's a QA team that does manual testing. And that's sort of the big okay. integration test, a.k.a. maybe a system test. Right now, instead, what we want to do is we want to create automated integration tests, and we're kind of going, trying to find what convention is going to work given the legacy code base, which
0: is quite large. Is this Python, I assume? hmm mm-hmm. And the integration test... Is that just something somewhere between system and unit? Or do yeah. you have a particular definition?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, some, it's something somewhere between system and, and, and unit. No, exactly. And uh, I think I don't have a really great specific definition that always works for this. And in fact, I don't want to be too contrarian here, but I would say that there shouldn't be one. So one thing that I find a little bit appalling about tests I don't know exactly how to phrase this. This is a little bit off the cuff. But for me, uh, my first introduction to testing wasn't formal in any way. It was kind of indirect. Basically what it was was someone was saying like, oh, I don't really feel like tackling this feature or this assignment today. Maybe I'll just go write some tests. <laughs> right? Like, like, like somehow the tests are a, a smaller uh, thing. They don't want a full meal. They just want a snack. Right? At the time, I just accepted it. You know, and at the time, I was also writing unit tests like crazy, like very soon afterwards. So uh, it was kind of a different time. These days, my view is that it's very strange that application development and infrastructure development, it doesn't have these levels, these labels assigned to it. And yet, in my experience a test is always necessarily more dynamic than the code that it's testing. You know, it has to really flex around this code uh, in order to test it from every angle. And so the test is actually much harder. And I think that the reason why unit tests are so popular and so, like, well-defined and rigorous is because they're kind of easy, (laughs) right? They are these bite-sized snacks. You just, like, isolate a very small piece packet full of mocks, and then uh, it's almost something that can be a little bit tedious at times. And I think that a good test is never tedious, and integration tests are challenging things to do, and the fact that it's challenging is a sign that it actually does need to be tested, because otherwise someone's just going to have to manually do it at a system level. Yeah. That's probably, uh, sorry to rant there, but uh, you know, I think that's basically where I'm at right now with my testing philosophy.
0: I like it. The one thing that... um... Well, I'm gonna rant a little bit as well, sure. Because uh, at least this part of the conversation, hopefully, wasn't just an interview to get your view, <laughs> but I want to, I want to like spout my view as well. Mm-hmm. Before I get there, though, I have one intermediate question: Have you always worked with QA teams? Yeah, from the
1: very first day of my professional, like, full-time employment, there was a QA team, and that sort of faded over time as what we did got sort of harder to test, if you would.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. In my career, let's see, I've worked at like lots of different groups. And usually the the norm is not having a QA. Mm -hmm. The norm that I've been with is the development team does all of the testing. Mm -hmm. And so in a philosophy like test-driven development or something, where the idea is you spend... I mean, I don't know if it, anybody's ever said this, but approximately half your time writing tests and approximately half your time writing source code, you know, maybe.
1: That sounds great,
0: but yeah. But if you're doing that and half your time is doing unit tests, then I don't have another half of my time left over to write system tests. Yeah. And so there's, every time I've been on a project without a QA team, then the development team needs to decide where they're spending their testing time. And the promises that we're giving to the customer, to me, are more important than the promises that I'm giving to myself for an individual function. Mm-hmm. So I actually am not opposed to unit tests. I write mm-hmm. quite a few. But the I think a balance of trying to find out, writing tests where I can find the most information about the system I'm trying to design, Exactly, and doing that at the level that makes sense, I did hear it was off the cuff. I can't remember who I heard it from, but instead of things like unit test, integration, and system, I heard a, a reference to unit tests, package level, subsystem level, mm-hmm. or service level, mm-hmm. and um, and then system tests. I think even system tests could even be broken into like a, a sub feature or something. Mm-hmm. But when I first learned about this. I was developing a product with absolutely, there was absolutely no way you could run a unit test. It was just, it was a VXWorks embedded mm-hmm. system And I guess I could have tried to write unit tests, but it was just most of our testing was uh, system level. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to morph the TDD idea into what I thought of as a functional unit, trying to assume the rest of the world works and test one function at a time or one functionality.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an approach. And when I look at code bases that I admire... The only thing that I find really consistently between them isn't like the you know the plethora of unit tests or something. But the thing that I find in common is that like even if I can mutually understand all of their different code bases, their testing strategies are so wildly different, you know and it's, I think it has to do with the type of software that's being written. So, I think about SQLite. I really admire the SQLite codebase and it has at least 3 different testing strategies. Everything from unit tests to tests specifically for the query uh, parser and planner and uh, you know, then it has like even I mentioned fuzzing, you know. Yeah. So, basically and it has much more than that and it's a it's a component that that really needs it and I don't know like how much you can take from that approach, and just go cross apply it to an arbitrary application. It's a piece of infrastructure that of a certain sort that needs its own kinds of tests.
0: Yeah, and there's certain things that are going to be difficult to do at a like a small level. Like I don't know if you've ever I've l- looked at the uh, the test code for PyTest itself, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is a little tiny. Like it has it's actually pretty decent documentation for i've never been one for believing that tests are documentation for a system mm-hmm. but uh for pytest it, it works pretty good because the tests are they write little little tests and say you know for this feature to work then this kind of a test should result in something like this mm-hmm. and that's definitely a, a functional system level. I got to
1: think that's really hard for that team to discuss. Uh, you know, like when your tests are themselves like tests, <laughs> but like they're test cases, but the test case it can itself also be part of a, a bigger test case. It's it's just got to be really tough to discuss.
0: <laughs> I, I I really applaud those These. framework authors. Yeah, there's some pretty smart guys. For sure. And and most of it volunteer, but anyway. Definitely. Um, I
1: mean, I, I donated to their recent sprint, and I got some stickers. They're pretty nice. Yeah, okay. I, so, I didn't donate, but I begged
0: for stickers, and I got them anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, 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 I mean, I think that you're contributing plenty to the PyTest uh, <laughs> community as well, in your own way. So... I was also going to go off a little bit more on, on unit testing. So, uh, <laughs> like, Please. Yeah, basically, I think that TDD can be useful for a certain type of programmer in a certain place, but I think that your approach as using tests to discover like your, the application that you need and the architecture that you need is really, really critical. And the reason is... I talked about this in my course, that when you add tests to something or documentation or really any sort of uh, software engineering periphery to a piece of code, it's a little bit like pouring cement on it. You're kind of solidifying this piece of code and it becomes something that's harder to refactor. If you go unit tests first, you're so zoomed in to the design that if a refactor comes, you're going to really uh, weigh yourself down. So unless there's something like a spec, a standard, an RFC that you're implementing to, or if you're doing a port, right, then I think that this bottom-up testing isn't great. You talked about, I can't remember how long ago, like uh, basically people are obsessed with the testing pyramid, that you have this heavy base of like tons of unit tests, and then you have some integration tests, and then you have this tiny little triangle of system tests at top. And this is, I guess, to try to minimize manual testing. But if that manual testing is something that would have helped you discover a better design, a better API, uh, you can think of it as like a UX test. There's no way to really turn that into a unit test. And uh, so like, if you try to prioritize that base and work your way up, you can end up with some pretty bad software. TDD isn't necessarily going to give you great software.
0: Well, if you do it from the unit test level, you're exactly right. Yeah, exactly. But if you read Kent Beck's early writing about it and his recent discussions about it, it's He never intended it to be a unit test. Only that's
1: true. That's true. I I, I should I should temper that for sure. I mean, Um, it's just every time I've seen a demo to me, right? It's like, oh, like we're gonna implement like you know a test for this addition
0: operation. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm guilty of that too, but it's an easy example to uh, to show, I guess.
1: If I have any innov like you know innovation in the testing space, because everything I think everything I'm saying now, I think has been said sort of here and there by you and others. If I have any innovation to add to the testing space, it was when I did a port of the Dust templating language for Python. It's called Ashes. It's on GitHub. It's sort of a single file templating language that is you know intended for. HTML, web use, and so forth is sort of the basically enables you to have server side rendering of something that you can also render on the front end, kind of an unrealized dream. Like it's never quite perfect, but it works really well as a Python templating language. And the way that I got it to that point was I was porting it from JavaScript, and because it was a port, I was able to start with the unit tests and there are all these different stages you have to parse the template or you have to tokenize the template you have to parse the template you have to optimize the template you have to compile it you have to you know like compile it to python code and compile that python code and run it and then check that the output is the same as the javascript i called it cumulative testing at the time each of these stages was like a unit test for a given template input and if all like six stages or whatever passed then that was kind of my integration test and if a whole set of these templates from the docs of the dust js templating language were to pass then that was sort of like a system test if you would and so it had a nice grid that it output that showed that it was compatible with the spec of dust js and um, I had to write my own uh, test runner for that. I tried to figure out a way to get it to work in PyTest, and it just wasn't a great fit. But I know, because it was a simple port, I know that that was the best testing strategy, though.
0: Well, you, you tested at different levels to have to give yourself confidence at different levels of the software.
1: Right. Like I think that if you're going to write tests early, then they shouldn't just weigh you down. They shouldn't just end up being cruft that delays a refactor. They should really be helpful during the development process. So that's sort of going with what you're saying, discovering more about the application you want.
0: That's where I, f- I focus mostly on the APIs when I'm doing testing. Mm-hmm. And the API can be an internal API, like a, a package that I'm I'm intending to reuse later. Mm-hmm. But But it also could be the end-user API or something. Right. And um, like a project I'm working on right now, I don't know what the user interface is exactly going to look like. So I'm focusing on like one layer down that is something that's easy to access an API level, level, but that's really easy to run from Python. So
1: Yeah. I mean, anything that I'm doing that I haven't done before, any sort of creative software that I'm I'm doing, I kind of have to, I'll, I'll take any angle on it that I can get. So, I'll start writing the code, and then I'll say, "Oh, should it do this or should it do that?" And I try to answer that question through either writing a test or writing some docs or telling someone about it.
0: <laughs> so do you, in writing like a higher level it, actually any level test, but a higher level sort of like API test or something, do you learn about the software that you're designing while you're writing tests?
1: No, absolutely, that's like that I'm telling you that's the whole point that I write tests that early on. Unless I have a specific standard report that I'm going against, the reason I write tests while I'm developing is to feel what it would be like to use a library or an
0: application like this. If that learning is so important, and I think it is... It absolutely is, yeah. Why would you let a a separate team like a QA team get to do that learning?
1: Oh, arrangement that would have a QA team like do that, I think is robbing the developer of a fulfilling development process. The QA teams that I've seen... It actually usually goes the other way. I actually often end up feeling kind of bad for QA teams because oftentimes they include very capable developers like yourself, and they aren't allowed to be QA engineers. They aren't given the proper amount of time to like automate the stuff that they should just have done manually and on my desk yesterday. You know, They just are okay. there to verify a build. And that's okay for some folks, but I've really... In my experience, seeing QA people who want to expand beyond that role and and start using their programming skills again, but alas, that's not always the case.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't worked with a, a QA team that does mostly manual for a very long time. Hmm.
1: These days, you know, things are things are happening in closed systems. It's, it's harder to automate something than. If you, especially if you're working with consumer software, then the test really is to be the consumer of the software. If you're dealing with an app, yeah. and so if you're if you de- dealing in server code, infrastructure code, then uh, automation is really within your grasp. And that was the place where I felt like the most frustrated that they weren't, you know, being encouraged to automate, <laughs> being given the time to automate. These days, I, I really don't know. Like your hands are kind of tied by Apple and yeah. uh google in many cases so what
0: are you gonna do i guess i'm fortunate for always i have for my whole career been worked in a systems in systems that have um have a complete api that is actually usually more functional than the the manual user interface that is
1: nice that is nice yeah
0: but then i don't get to have fun with like things like microservices and stuff like that so yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't feel too left out. We talked about unit tests, uh kind of talked about integration tests being somewhere between system and unit. Mm-hmm. System hopefully that we agree that that's just some test that in- tests the whole thing. Right. And hopefully as close to a production environment as possible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh a functional test. What's a functional test?
1: I think that like I said, I think that all these labels are just sort of created so that people can move around tests that Need to exist into these various buckets, and it can be useful to discuss them to use them as sort of placeholders uh, for degrees of granularity. But I think that you won't find moving from team, yeah, moving from team to team, right? Like you'll you're going to find a wide variation of what is a functional test versus what is an integration test, and so. Personally, I would place the, the high if you want an ordering right by my expectation it would be like unit functional integration system is my guess maybe integration and functional are reversed okay the one thing that deserves a shout out regardless is is regression testing which isn't oh, yeah. a, which isn't a level because a regression can happen at any level but I think that that ends up being maybe one of the most important testing practices that you need to have an affordance. Even if you're not using a standard test runner like PyTest, you need to have some affordance for feeding buggy inputs or and into the into the software and making sure that they stay fixed. Okay, so what is a regression test? So a regression test is uh, when you discover a bug and you create a minimum uh, viable, or maybe not even minimum viable, but like if you re- obtain some input that will trigger that failure. And then you codify that into into your testing automation system. That is a automated regression test. Okay. It, it basically once you fix that bug that test should never fail again. It should never treat like cause that bug to occur again.
0: Now, after you've written that test, do you put that somewhere else than the other test? Do you have just a regression suite, or do you have um, just put it in with the rest of the tests?
1: In our server framework, we had a lot of custom serialization code, and there were a lot of corner cases that could occur with that. So we had a custom regression test directory, a whole tree for these strange and exotic Serialized formats that would cause errors, and we'd go in that we'd fix our serialization code, and then we'd never hear from them again. I'm not sure where I read it, but someone called that directory. It's like a pattern that emerges in a lot of code bases. Someone called that directory the Zoo, yeah, because (laughs) that's sort of your menagerie of all these uh, very intriguing, interesting wild beasts. (laughs) Could have just called it Portland. Ah. the uh, it, it is your hometown. You can say <laughs> you can say that sort of thing.
0: I was curious what you guys did, I, I or what you'd like to do. We that sort of a test. We just try to put in with wherever it makes sense at the same testing level as everything else. Mm-hmm. But the we usually. I do like to, tests are red also, just like every other code, and mm-hmm. I do like to put in, for a particular test like that, a reference back to the defect tracking number or whatever you're using.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
0: Uh, and to say, so that somebody can, not necessarily in the test name, but at least in the, the doc string or something to say that this test is here because this bug happened and we're making sure that it doesn't happen again.
1: Yeah, I've never actually worked at a place that had really good documentation sort of standards and practices that said I'm pushing it really hard like when you write an integration test or frankly any piece of code I always tell them like don't tell me how this works I can read the code it's python and like you know, tell me why this code exists. Why you think this code exists? Why this test exists? That is going to really help me make decisions down the line much more than a roughshod description of what the code did when it was first written. Tell me like a change log of why these why changes were made, and that's gonna that's gonna save me a lot of code <laughs> having to be read.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's even more important. Let's, I guess it's equally important to tests to, to say why a test is there. Definitely. Um, because some tests are there just because this is the functionality that works as is. We're just making sure that nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Or this is the functionality that really important customer X wanted. And uh, so we need to make sure that's in place. Something mm-hmm. like that. Anyway, if I was going to change gears a bit, absolutely, yeah. Unless you want to keep on talking about test levels, uh, <laughs> no, but, <laughs> it's your show,
1: man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I want to ask you a little bit more about the your enterprise Python program sure. that you have. So, tell me what it is, and
1: uh, sure, absolutely. So. Once we reached once the python team at paypal reached a certain place uh, where we were maintaining our own framework and we had lots of users and so forth inside the company we had a little bit of spare time to write about our learnings and so i wrote a blog post about the myths of enterprise python basically the the kind of misconceptions i had to dispel meeting after meeting and I was like, this is just going to be way more efficient if I write it up. And what better place to write it up than the public company tech blog, of course. So having written that and a couple other posts, O'Reilly reached out to me. They were curious if I could put together a video course for Enterprise Python usage. And I agreed. I, I was a little bit like hesitant about it, but I ended up agreeing, put much time into it. And uh, it's available For uh, purchase and viewing. (laughs) But the TLDR of it is that there's not really a formula for it. There's no silver bullet. There are a bunch of practices that you learn. There are a lot of things to avoid, but you have to kind of just hunker down and write code that actually gets the job done. Basically, when I'm uh, interacting with people in an enterprise environment, this is the reminder that I constantly have to, to give them, is that If your code works, if it does its job, if it provides value, then we can get out of all these meetings, right? Like Meetings are not going to get the code written. And so this is kind of the power of Python in our experience, is that you can sweep in, you can get the job done, get something that works and is reliable, and then... You can move on to more projects.
0: Faster code, less meetings. I like it. Yeah, it's 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 a non-standard approach
1: to enterprise software, but it's trying to kind of clean up clean up the act, if you would.
0: Okay, so by enterprise software, what is enterprise? Is that stuff like tools that are written for internal enterprise usage, or
1: it's a great question.
0: I think that that may
1: be one of the preview segments of the course. Is I sort of outline what enterprise software is. I give kind of nine hallmarks of enterprise software and you know some of the keys are like well unlike consumer software it's not being shipped out to the whole market as a whole right you have a kind of a target market maybe as few as just five or six people. I wrote the pricing the pricing tools at PayPal and I don't think more than six people could change the prices of PayPal. But it was still a pretty complex piece of code because the pricing structures were so advanced. So that's something that made that enterprise software. It was written on Django, so it wasn't necessarily like something crazy under the hood. But it was uh, pretty niche. So that's an example of a hallmark of enterprise software. I'd say.
0: I guess does it make a difference if you're going to have a if you're going to write a little tool that has a REST API or a user interface on a web app? Does that make a difference to which framework you're going to use if you're going to use Flask or Django or something?
1: Oh, absolutely. So at PayPal, like I said, we started with Django and uh, we you know, went with that for a while when we were doing these admin-type front ends, and that ended up being an architecture that was very popular. It turned kind of viral. I wrote really good docs for it and then many other teams kind of just adopted it wholesale so that you'll find a lot of Django for admin tools at PayPal. Then... When we switched to more service-oriented architecture, we ended up dropping Django. We didn't use Django REST framework. And even when looking at Flask, we found that to be a little bit too focused on very expansive APIs, like very featureful, not very performance-focused. And we knew what our target consumers would be accessing us with, like what kind of clients they had. So we actually switched to a web framework that I wrote as part of Hatnote for a Wikipedia project that uses Worksog under the hood, so it's like Flask, but it is much lighter weight and has less global state. So that made it really good for our high concurrency use cases. And is that, that classic? So that's classic. Okay. And uh, yeah, you can see kind of how we integrated it with the support reference framework that we released on the PayPal public GitHub. So, and we still use these, uh, we still use these tools at our new uh, organization as well at Shopkick. So yeah, it's, okay. I guess uh, because it was kind of focused in nature, it was, it was suitable for our particular use cases and we're pretty satisfied with it.
0: And if you were, you, you would still grab Django if you're going to use something with a front end then?
1: So one of the main reasons I recommend Django for folks is like, I look at the big picture, Right? And if they are going to be, if they are someone who enjoys web development and they want to specialize in this, I'm not going to recommend a tiny little micro framework. If they want to have a career developing Django sites or developing websites, then Django's a great way to go. It's a huge ecosystem, great community, tons of documentation. And uh, those are really important parts. It's not just about the code underneath, because Django has some ugly bits internally that were that sort of thing would affect our specific use case but that doesn't disqualify it as a whole
0: so i can use class can i use classic for something that a front end then
1: yeah happily you know it's it's there i use it oh, okay the montage project that is the wiki Loves monuments judging platform is probably the largest External to PayPal usage of Classic that there is,
0: so it makes a pretty good reference. Can normal humans access that, or is that an internal thing? No, that's uh,
1: that's on uh, GitHub.com forward slash hatnote forward slash montage. Okay, if you want to actually. Like access the live site, you would need to be invited as a jury member to one of the competitions that are being held on Wikimedia Commons. So in a way, Montage was a lot like this enterprise software again, where it had a very specific purpose and it had a pretty small audience. I think that even though this is a, the largest photography competition in the world and had like 275,000 photos entered into it from like 50 different countries, only 200 people have logged in ever. So, really? Okay. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty niche. But the as you'll see from the code base, it's, it's far from trivial. And I think that that is one of the key hallmarks of enterprise software.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah, we're wrapping up near in an hour. Sure, sure. But do you have anything else you want to plug or anything? No, not I mean not really.
1: These days, I'm sort of putting together some more writing, tying up some loose ends. I'm focused a lot on application instrumentation right now that Wikilo's Monuments has done. So if people are interested in performance measurements, robust structured logging, I'm always looking for collaborators, I guess. And so, yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm M-H-A-S-H-E-M-I. <laughs> I'm sure that you ha- you'll you have links on the site as well. Or I'm just mathmood on
0: GitHub too. I'll put links up. Thanks a ton for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to TalkPython courses, Nerd Lettering, and Test and Code Patreon supporters for making this show possible. Uh, the only promo code that I had to give to you was the Nerd Lettering. So that's test code, all one word, at nerdlettering.com. At uh, Talk Python courses or at training.talkpython.fm, and you can uh, support the show um, by becoming a Patreon supporter. And uh, there's information on that in the support link at testencode.com Show notes are at testingcode.com. Yes, that's correct. You can still find me at pythontesting.net, but testencode.com is now a thing. Past episodes are there, but they may not be pretty yet. I'm still working on it. I've got some incredible people lined up for future episodes and a couple of interviews already recorded and in the pipeline. Talk to you next time. Now go test some code.